I want to invite you to turn to what William Tyndale called the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament. I invite you to turn to Romans. If you have a Bible, I'll invite you to find the New Testament book of Romans, which we have uh, begun studying together. Really, we haven't actually started, as I've been saying, this is the introduction to the introduction, maybe to the introduction. And uh, Lord willing, today the introduction will be introduced, and then we'll move on and actually get into it next week. But what we've been doing is looking at a number of significant things about the book of Romans that would motivate us to study it, that would help us to see the big picture so that as we're in the midst of it, we wouldn't lose sight of the big picture. And so we've looked at a rather lengthy list of things that are extraordinary about the book of Romans. We've looked at 11 so far, and this morning, Lord willing, we'll look at seven more. So I'm not sure how many 18-point sermon series you've heard, uh, but I know I've done at least one other one in my history of being here in Ephesians chapter 1, but who knows, there'll probably be more in the days ahead. Let me review the first 11. Uh, you probably won't even have time to write them down. You could certainly uh, catch them on the podcast and get brought up to speed. But number one, we've learned that Romans is powerful. Number two, it is lasting or enduring, that is, as opposed to trendy. Number three, Romans is simple. Number four, Romans is complex. Number five, Romans is clear about sin and its effects. Number six, Romans is the answer to the question. Number seven, Romans is God-centered. Number eight, Romans is good news, not merely good advice. Number nine, Romans is Christ-exalting. Number ten, Romans is liberating. Number eleven, Romans is the giver or a giver of assurance. So we're going to look at seven more this morning, and I imagine by the time we get to the last two or so, I probably will just be able to mention them in passing and perhaps say a few things, but then we'll move on and have our introduction introduced. Let's jump right in and not take any more time to set things up and go ahead and look at number 12, the 12th significant thing about the book of Romans that would compel us to want to study it, to spend some time looking at it. Number 12 on my list would be Romans is unifying. Romans is unifying. There are only a couple of things on planet earth that I think are more unifying than the gospel, which we have articulated in the book of Romans. Number one would be we're made in the image of God, and that includes every human being. That's the most unifying thing. And right up there with it, we're all sinners. That unifies all of us on planet earth. But next to those things, the most unifying force on the planet, I believe with all of my heart, is the gospel, the good news of salvation, that Jesus Christ came here and having lived a perfect life on our behalf, then died a perfect substitutionary death on the cross on our behalf so that he would absorb all of the just wrath of God on our behalf so that if we believe in him, we don't have to have our sins punished. We don't have to be punished by this just God. We believe that Christ did that for us. Not only did he then live and die, he rose again from the dead so that we would live in newness of life. And that unifies us, unifies us radically to the point where now I have more in common with people that I know who live literally on the other side of the planet than I do with my blood relatives who are not Christians. It's this amazing, powerful, unifying force. 
And in chapter 1, he talks about it right away as he's talking about the difference between Jew and Gentile. They're equally sinners, but Jew and Gentile have been united, and that's a pretty amazing thing. Look at chapter 1, verse 16, familiar verse, first verse I've ever memor- I ever memorized uh, in studying Romans. And it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news about salvation in Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This unifies Jew and Greek. Well, there are two kinds of people on the planet. There are Jews and there's everyone else. And, and, and that's an amazing thing. If you spent much time with someone who is Jewish, who is not just a Jew by birth or uh, by name, but they actually are a practicing, committed Jew, you see that there is a difference between the way they live and the way you live. And then go back to the first century and, and before, and there's a big difference. In fact, in fact, that's part of what God was doing in calling God's nation to be a holy nation, there to be different from everybody else. Part of His plan and purpose. They're the ones who worship the one true God, Yahweh, different from every other God, different from every other religion. They're supposed to be different. They're not supposed to be unified with any other people, any other nation. But through faith in Messiah doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. If you believe in Him by His sovereign grace, you trust in Him and Him alone, you are part of the family of God and you, whether you're Jew or Gentile, are worshiping the same God or part of the same family to the point where you have more in common than you do with even blood relatives, whether they be Jew or Gentile. This is an amazing, amazing reality. It is powerfully unifying. If you go to Romans chapter 10, you'll see that Paul isn't done talking about this. In fact, there are places even between chapter 1 and chapter 10 where he's talking about the same reality of this gospel, the gospel that we have articulated so clearly in Romans being this powerful, powerful unifying force. In chapter 10 verse 12 we read, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. And that is about as amazing as could possibly be given all the Old Testament background. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all, Jew or Gentile, who call on Him. For whoever, Jew or Gentile, will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We could take the time then to go to Ephesians to see that there's the dividing wall between the two has been taken down. It's been abolished, chapter 2. And, and we have this amazing, amazing unity. We see it between Jew and Gentile, but we not only see it with Jew and Gentile, we see it even now as years and years later, we just see it on planet Earth with everyone. This is why when when I see and I go to a conference and, and I see a friend who's from the middle of Siberia, immediately we 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 hug as brothers do. Because we have this camaraderie that is absolutely amazing because we believe in the same gospel. We believe in the same reality of of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then I turn around and I see another person that I know from New Zealand. And then we, we are so thrilled to see each other. And then I see someone else who's doing ministry in Japan and you get the idea. You know what it's like when you meet a believer that looks totally different than you do, perhaps lives somewhere or is from uh, lives somewhere or is uh, from somewhere totally different from you and you right away have this this bond, this this unity because it's the same like precious faith and the same like precious savior and it is absolutely amazing. And it testifies to God's grace. Well, Romans is going to help us to see and help us to, to experience and to appreciate this amazing, amazing reality that we have in Christ through the gospel. It's not only true worldwide, it's true on a national level. 
Uh, one good illustration of this recently, uh, a couple of weeks ago, my brother called me and uh, he was calling me from Louisville, Kentucky. Usually when he calls me from there, he's doing doctoral work at Southern Seminary. Well, he graduated, so I thought maybe they called him back because he failed a class. I don't know. No, I, I, he was there because he was there for together for the gospel, which some of you are familiar with. And, and he said, you know, it's pretty amazing being here, just walking uh, into the conference center, and there are over 5,000 pastors and church leaders here. He said, it's an amazing, amazing thing. And I obviously had this stuff on my mind. So I was thinking about the amazing reality of the gospel, forging us together, uniting us together and thinking that they're not coming to get to together for the gospel so that they can somehow in a trivial way, stand on one side of the auditorium shouting, we love Jesus. Yes, we do. We love Jesus. How about you? That wasn't what it was about. It wasn't about, as one men's conference and one men's movement had and was described as they were giving each other Holy Ghost back rubs. What's that? What kind of uni- It wasn't that they left their doctrine at the door so that they could be united. They, they, those 5,000 plus individuals came in with their doctrine in big giant bags. They, they didn't check their luggage. They, they actually did carry on. They did carry in. And they, they carried in their luggage that says, we believe and will go to the wall for the gospel that God saves only by His grace and only through faith, only in the finished work of Christ. And guess what? That's what unites us. That's what unites us and that's what's amazing about the book of Romans. It's showing us, even through that Jew and Gentile example, that it can unite the ununitable. And we can be on the same page being equipped and being challenged and being forged together so that when we do separate, we actually are still unified because we're still all about doing the very same thing, which is bringing glory to this great and magnificent Savior who brings us together. Now, some of you might be thinking, as I thought, if this is really true, then why is there any division? And I I don't know. There shouldn't be any. There really shouldn't be. But there is, and I think it would be beyond the scope of what we'll do this morning, but if I could just push pause, which I can't, that clock and I are enemies, but, <laughs> but just push pause for just a couple of minutes and, and just think with me why it is that we do have divisions. On one level, it would have to be because we're not really being serious about the gospel as the Bible presents it. We're really not being serious about, let's say, Romans which is given to articulate in an in-depth way what the gospel is and really, by implication, what it is not. See, here's what we do. We say, well, to me, God is. And I could say that. Well, I just want you to know, to me, God is something. And then Alan could say, well, but to me, God is. And then we can go around the room and Ron says, but but to me, God is. And then his wife says, Diana, you know, but to me, God is. And the only thing we're doing there is we're being tolerant of one another. But that is the furthest thing from being unified. We're not being unified at all. That's very divisive. What's unifying is when we say, God is. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Objective, external reality, fact. Because it comes from the Scriptures. It comes from reality. And then all of a sudden we can say, that's what draws us together. That's what unifies us. To somehow think that, well, to me God is, and to me God is, to me God is. If there are 250 people or 300 people in the room right now or whatever it may be, we've got 250, 300 different views right now and we're anything but united. 
And so it's important for us to realize that we want to come to what God has said about himself. And what we want to do is have our self-sovereignty, if you will, confronted by objective external reality that says, Pat, stop saying to me God is. Because it doesn't matter to, to do what you believe about God if it's not true. And by the way, a good way to, a good label for that would be idolatry. And so one reason why there is division is because we're so bent on having our own God. I love Romans and it's going to unify us. It will unify the planet, if you will, if we submit to what God says about himself, what God says about his son. And I love it that we're studying Romans because, again, it's a little bit when necessary like a blow to the face. And it's saying, Pat, stop that. Stop believing wrong things about Jesus Christ because it's divisive to do that. Get on board and we'll enjoy unity. And it does that in your life as well, no doubt. Now, one other thing that comes up when it comes to division, and now the clock and I are really enemies. And uh, turn, if you would, just one book over to the right. We'll probably spend more time on this than the other ones by necessity. But if you turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you, you also see another biblical, explicitly biblical reason why there is division in the world and there's division in the Christian world even. Remember, Paul's writing to the Corinthian believers. Uh, he's writing to a church, so these aren't atheists. He's writing to them, and there is division amongst them, even in the church. And he tells why, and even says how that can be used of God to actually accomplish something. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18, it says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, among you as a church. And in part, I believe it. Verse 19. For there must also be factions among you. Oh, I say, why? He goes on to tell us why. So that those who are approved may become evident among you. One way God uses division providentially is to show who's on what team. Are you on the team that says, this is what God says about himself, therefore I believe that? Or are you on the team that says, to me, God is. Division, as much as we don't like it, can serve as a servant to us. It makes things clear. And so we do see it. Well, I don't know how we're going to get back to what we need to talk about in time, but we're going to try to do that. Let me just say one more thing before we move on to the next point, and that would be, okay, global unity when it comes to believers in Christ, it's amazing. National unity, believers among Christ, it's amazing. And we should also ultimately come down to our local church here. I trust that by God's grace, as we study Romans together, we know Christ better We know ourselves better. We know the gospel better. And we should be, as a local church, more unified than we have ever been before. Anytime we open the book, quite frankly. But here we are looking at Romans that articulates the gospel to us, that that, that just shatters our pride, brings about humility, brings about the exaltation of Christ. I trust in the years ahead, Omaha Bible Church will be more united in its commitment to the gospel than ever before. And I totally mean that. And that's a good thing. That's a great thing. We're not unifying for unity's sake. What's that? We're unifying for the sake of the proclamation, 
promotion of the gospel. Let's move on now to the next one. Number 13, Romans is helpful in making sense of the Old Testament. Romans is helpful in making sense of the Old Testament. This happens right away. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. Right away, he's helping us to see that the Old Testament and the New Testament have a huge connection. And it says in verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, verse 2, which he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Old Testament. Uh, there we have it. I mean, it's as if to say the gospel of Jesus Christ is Old Testament truth. This isn't some new, fangled, fancy idea that happened in first century Palestine as some sort of afterthought. No, by God's prophets in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament scriptures, this, this, this Messiah was talked about. He was promised. Let's keep reading in verse 3. All of this was concerning his son, Old Testament, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. And we won't get into that, but we'll see next time. That's tying Jesus into Messianic promise, Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7. He, he is the one who is fulfilling that promise of a divine king. And so it's great to study Romans because then all of a sudden the Old Testament makes more sense. And by the way, when you study the Old Testament, the New Testament makes more sense. Now, if we look at this on a different level, if you turn to chapter 4, you turn to chapter 4 and you see that there's another important thing we learn about the Old Testament, and that is, in the Old Testament they were saved, how? By works? Don't say yes, lest you embarrass yourself. I remember being a brand new Christian thinking... Old Testament, saved by works, keeping the law. New Testament, saved by grace through faith in Christ. Some of you probably think that. And you know what? We're all growing and learning from Christians, and uh, that's great. But it's time to stop believing that. <laughs> and it's time for us to realize that the only way anyone has ever been saved or justified is by grace through faith. Let's see right here. Chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say? That Abraham, see in the Old Testament or new? Don't say unless you really know. <laughs> Old Testament, right? Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found. For if Abraham was justified, declared righteous by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. This is a ridiculous conclusion. That would never happen. Verse 3, for what does the Scripture say? My favorite question on the planet. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. How was Abraham justified? He was justified. The argument of Romans 4 is he was justified by faith and by faith alone. There is great, therefore, we say uh, in theology, there's great continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There is some discontinuity, as in Abraham didn't believe that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, per se, and believe all of this exact stuff about who Jesus uh, is and all of these things. Those things hadn't been revealed yet, but he believed what God had revealed up until that point in time. Call that progressive revelation. But there's great similarity. Furthermore, you read in the book of Romans, you get into Romans 9, 10, and 11, and all of a sudden there it helps us understand the Old Testament as well, and you see, oh, you know what? God does talk about His nation Israel, and that's significant. Romans 8, you're hearing secure, 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 secure. There's nothing you can do to lose your salvation because God keeps His promises to His people, and then you think, yeah, but He's not doing a very good job right now of keeping it to the nation of Israel. 
Well, then Romans 9, 10, and 11 helps us to see, you know what? God has not revoked his promises to them. He will keep his word to them. And again, we're understanding the Old Testament better than we would have otherwise. So I love it that we're studying Romans because it'll help us understand Old Testament, New Testament. They're not in conflict. We don't have the old grumpy God in the Old Testament, and now he doesn't keep his word anymore and all that kind of thing. No. A lot of similarity. We're going to see it, and it should enrich us even as believers. Number 14 on the list here of extraordinary things about the book of Romans. Romans is service-promoting. It is service-promoting. Let me put it another way. Romans is going to call you, if you're a Christian, it's going to call you to get in the game. Okay? It's going to call you to do something. And you say, but I thought salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It is. But if you really understand that, after 11 chapters, turn to chapter 12 if you would, after 11 chapters of making it so clear that the only way you would have any hope whatsoever is because of the finished work of Christ and has nothing to do with what you do. He then makes it clear that out of appreciation, out of thanksgiving, out of gratitude, out of praise to God, if you really understand salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, you will look to God and you will want to serve Him out of appreciation. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, looking back at the whole whole first part of the book, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, I think that's code for the first 11 chapters, to present your bodies, all of you, a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Live for the glory of Christ. And then he goes on to explain how you're not supposed to live for yourself anymore. You're supposed to live for the glory of Christ and that's why you love other Christians and you serve them. And that's why you even are kind and generous toward people who aren't Christians. Not because you're trying to work your way to heaven, but because Christ already worked you there through the cross work that he accomplished. We're going to see that. He goes on to explain service and gifts and it's all about other people and not about you and not about self-centeredness it's hospitality it's all of these things that happen within the body of christ outside of the body of christ it is service driven and i love the placement where it is in romans is profound it is magnificent but i have to say i don't want to wait till we get to romans 12 I'm not even sure I'm going to live that long. I don't want to wait till I get to Romans 12 to say pastorally, you're supposed to serve. If you really understand that Christ did it all for you, the supernatural right response is for you to then not be self-centered, but to be other-centered so that you might glorify Christ. Something is terribly wrong if you think you've been saved so you can sit in a chair and hear another sermon. Something is terribly wrong if you think somehow now you've got your get-out-of-hell-free card and now it's all about coasting because we're under grace. You're thankful. You're grateful. And and now you, you want to show appreciation. Not to pay back. You never could. 
But having lived a life of self-centeredness, now it's time to live for the body of Christ, which shows honor and thanksgiving to Christ. That's Romans 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 and 16. And so I don't want to miss the opportunity to say, please, get in the game. If someone says to you, where do you serve? I hope your first response isn't, um... We're supposed to serve in one way or another for the common good, 1 Corinthians 12 would say, for the building up of the body of Christ. And we're going to see that in Romans. And I think we're going to see more service than ever before because we're going to have the time to invest in the greatness and the profound nature of what Christ has done, 11 chapters worth. And then all of a sudden we are raging and raring to go to live Christian lives the way we're supposed to. But don't wait till then. You know now. You know now. Just remember too that it would be a a wrong idea of Christianity to think that Christians don't serve because Christianity is a religion, if you will, named after Christ. And Jesus is the one who declared very clearly, I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. So if you're a Christian, you're a follower of Christ. And so if you want to push the logic, if you don't serve, it's not really fair to use the word Christian because Christ served. So be motivated, be encouraged. Let's move on to number 15. Romans is bold. I love studying Romans because Romans is bold. If you don't like your coffee black, you might want to get your taste buds to adjust. If you don't like coffee, we're praying for you. (laughs) The analogy doesn't work. But Romans is, you know... Triple shot, quad shot, espresso, in your face, bold. Look at Romans 15 and you'll see what I'm talking about. In Romans chapter 15, you see that it is a bold book because it's talking about the gospel. And Romans, by the way, doesn't share the gospel. Romans preaches the gospel. Black coffee, espresso. It's bold because the gospel is bold because it says you're a sinner. That's bold. And it says, Jesus Christ, atone for your sins and and you trust in Him and Him alone and you can be reconciled to God and no longer His enemy. That's bold. Well, look at Romans 15, verse 15. Paul had to bring this up. He said in verse 15, lest he be accused of somehow being unloving or ungracious or whatever it is people say. In verse 15, he says, but I have written very boldly. Okay, I said bold. Nix that. Better add another shot. I have written very boldly to you on some points. So as to remind you again. Why does he have to be very bold? Because they need to be reminded. Reminded about things relating to the gospel. Remember, this is first century. They just learned this stuff. I take it if they needed to be reminded with very bold expect, uh, exhortation, I guess we better do very, 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 very bold at times. To you on some point, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given 
me from God. And I love that. It's not that he's, he's somehow ungracious and unkind and not very nice and wrathful and grumpy in his uh, apostleship and therefore I'm going to remind you with great boldness. <laughs> no. Because of grace, I'm very bold. I love seeing the connection. Because of grace, the grace of God, I find myself being very bold with you about the gospel. He then talks about issues related to the gospel. Verse 16, to be a minister of Christ, a servant of Christ Jesus, to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest, using that Old Testament metaphor as a priest, the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting, this boldness again, in things pertaining to God. Very bold. Bold about the gospel. He's not giving them, the Romans doesn't give us gospel light, doesn't give us candy-coated gospel, doesn't give us soft-sell gospel, because that's not the gospel. It gives us the gospel, and therefore we're very bold about it, and it comes out loud and clear. It's not to be trifled with, it's not to be altered, it's not to be tweaked, it's not to be downplayed or relegated to the background. It's black coffee, espresso, quad shot, bold. After all, Romans 1.16 says the gospel is the power of God. That's not soft sell. Unto salvation. To everyone who believes. Nothing other than boldness is acceptable when it comes to the gospel. Nothing other than boldness is acceptable when it comes to Romans. That's why. And I would believe with all my heart that if we need to hear anything in churchianity, it's we need a revisiting of the boldness of the cross of Christ and the boldness of the gospel. I've been reading David Wells' new book lately and I find it rather stimulating and, and, and rather interesting and engaging, but it caused me to think about one of his older books as I was thinking about this. Listen to David Wells. He's a profound, I believe, Christian thinker, thankful for his writings. Listen to what he says about this issue in his book, Losing Our Virtue. The most urgent need in the church today, even that part of it which is evangelical, I might even say especially that part of it which is evangelical, is the recovery of the gospel as the Bible reveals it to us. That's a pretty bold, risky statement. The issue in the church today, even the evangelical church, the issue is that we need to have a bold recovery of the gospel. I think he's totally right. And then he goes on to explain specifically the element that's missing and therefore the element that makes the gospel totally confusing in its absence is the reality of sin. It's the elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about. But if you go to the book that was written on the gospel to explain it, it's so front-loaded with three chapters on sin that I'm not sure how many pastors would be willing to preach it unless they were A, insane, or B, somehow called by God to do it. We'll join this church shrinkage movement instead of the church growth movement. The, the, the wither church community organization but it's the gospel it's to be boldly proclaimed Wells goes on to say with quite an indictment on the church I think does the church have the courage to become relevant by becoming biblical put that in your pipe and smoke it does the church have the courage or the boldness to become relevant by becoming biblical. 
I love that. It's motivating. It makes me want to study Romans. Romans is bold because it's the power of God unto salvation. We need to recover it. Number 16, Romans is personal. Romans is very, very personal. I'm not going to take the time to read from it, but if you looked at chapter 16, you could just gaze down Romans 16 and, and you could see that there are over 35 people mentioned by name in Romans 16. And no doubt there are some in the list that aren't even mentioned by name. All kinds of people. People from Phoebe to Quartus to all kinds of other names that you wouldn't use when you have children <sighs> in our culture. All of these people. And I want you to notice a couple of important things about those people that help us to see that Romans is personal. First of all, realize that Romans is personal because it's about the gospel. Because it's written, first of all, to people who hadn't been Christians very long. And second of all, they're real people. They're people like us. This was not Paul's letter to the Roman theologians and otherwise named eggheads. It's Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul's letter to the Roman Christians. Paul's letter to the Phoebes of the world. It's very, very personal. This is really helpful for us. Strong, weighty, profound theology. Who's that for? That's for the academicians. Nope. The imputation of Adam's sin, Romans 5.12. I've been told that if you really want to find out if somebody's a Bible student or not, look at their Bible in Romans 5.12 and see how withered it is. Pretty tough to get your mind around it. Who's that written to? Phoebe. It's written to people like you. It's written to people like me. Some of us, little education. Some of us, a lot of education. Everywhere in between. We're supposed to know this great and profound truth about Jesus Christ so that it will affect the way we praise and affect the way that we live and affect the way that we think. This is for us. Don't believe the lie for a second that somehow this is above Christians. They not only hadn't been believers very long, they didn't have near the tools that we have, the years of church history to learn from, and they're getting this stuff, Romans, imputation of Adam's sin stuff. It makes me motivated. I think, you know, this is for us. This is for me to understand how to live my life. More importantly, how to think rightly about God and and how to be saved if I'm not and how to be sanctified if I'm not. It's relevant stuff. Number 17 and 18, I'll just mention briefly. Number 17, another motivation or extraordinary thing about the book of Romans. 17, Romans is sanctifying. Romans is sanctifying. We read chapter 6 earlier, which talks about sanctification. Sanctifying, think of scrubbing. Starts with an S, maybe that helps you. Cleansing, maturing. When you talk about sanctification, typically you're talking about spiritual growth. If you want to grow spiritually, you probably don't need another seven points on how to do this doodad or that doodad. You want to grow spiritually? Dig in. 
Romans will accomplish that. It'll help you understand who you are. It'll help you understand who God is. It'll help you understand what he's done in Christ, not just in history past, but how history past impacts you right here and right now and the way that you live and how you relate to the government and how you relate to other people, how you relate to other people who don't like you very much, how you relate to other people that you don't like very much, and everything in between. It sanctifies us. It makes us more and more like Christ. And it also helps us understand how sanctification, spiritual growth, relates to justification, which has nothing to do with you or me. It has everything to do with Christ and how they complement each other. We're going to be able to look at that stuff, which is tremendously important. And number 18, finally, Romans is worshipful. Romans is worshipful. That takes us back to chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which we already looked at. Eleven chapters of what God has done. Respond in service, I said earlier, but you know what? Your service is worship. Respond in worship. I hope that Omaha Bible Church, as a result of our study, worships God like we didn't worship God before. I hope we learn that worship is all of life. Worship is everything. Yes, the corporate gathering and the listening and the study of God's Word. Yes, the standing up and the sitting down. Uh, Yes, all of the things we do when we gather together like this for corporate worship. And they are significant and they are biblical issues. But I hope we move beyond just thinking that that is worship because according to Romans 12, we're called to have everything that we do in life, whether it would be preparation for that exam you have or dealing with firing someone or being fired or you name it. Our lives are aimed out of appreciation for Christ and what He has done. Our our lives are aimed at bringing glory to Jesus Christ and that is worship for us. I love to think about the fact that we are going to be able to, by the grace of God, worship Jesus Christ in a way that we hadn't before. I love to think about the fact that, therefore, we will be able to give glory to Jesus Christ in a way we hadn't been able to give Him glory before. And I know that that is what pleases Him most. Because He's God. For Him to be glorified, for Him to be made much of, That's why you hear the prayers over and over again, like of the psalmist when he says, God, do this for me. Deliver me for your namesake. Ultimate motivation for God. Because he's God. And so as we seek to glorify Christ more extensively and more purely as a result of studying what he has done and responding the right way, I know that it will please God. And I know it will honor him. And I don't think it's selfish to say, and therefore I can't wait to see that happen so that he might even bless us and encourage us even more. So next Sunday, Lord willing, we will start the gospel according to Romans. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for the good news of your son that is articulated and explained. And we love to read the four gospels as we've just studied Matthew and to see Christ here on earth and all that he did and all that he accomplished for us. And it's so magnificent. And now, God, we don't want to move beyond that. We don't want to move past that. We just want to go deeper into the heart of the reality of what he did on our behalf so that we would live lives that are worshipful, that we would live lives that honor you and please you so that we would be faithful worshipers by your grace. Work in our midst, please. 
for your namesake. Amen.